Chapter 6 Blessing and Affliction Sermon 154 Preached Wednesday, the 11th of March, 1556 On Deuteronomy 28, 2-8 And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you will hearken to the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the offspring of your herds, and the lambs of your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading trough. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord shall cause your enemies that rise up against you to be smitten before your face. They shall come against you one way, and flee before you seven ways. The Lord shall command the blessing upon you in your storehouses, and in all that you set your hand to, and he shall bless you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. It is a thing to be marveled at, that man cannot be persuaded that they will prosper if they do righteously. This, however, proceeds from unbelief, because they do not acknowledge that their lives are in the power and direction of God and that it is his peculiar office to govern us. For if we were well assured that all creatures are in the hand of God, and also that he has care of us, it is certain that every one of us would rest in him, waiting to receive all goodness from him. This is something that should encourage us to serve him and to direct ourselves after his will. But although every one of us seeks and desires his own ease, yet we do not understand that God is the one from whom we must look for it. We can say it well enough, but our actions show that we cannot judge or conceive it to be so. Everyone tries to become rich by evil practices. Every man seeks his own happiness by offending God. We have to conclude that we are without sense and reason, since this doctrine, in which we should be resolved, cannot be imprinted in our minds, to wit, that all welfare proceeds from the hand of God, and that there is no way to prosper except by giving ourselves over to Him and to His service. Misery and Sin Yet notwithstanding, God has always left this engraved on the hearts of men, so that the pagans themselves had the same opinion common among them, that the wretchedness and miseries to which we are subject proceed from the corruption of mankind. It is certain that they were not taught about the fall of Adam, and that they did not understand how all mankind came to be cursed. For the devil, through his wiles, had put them out of that knowledge. All the same, it was understood among them, and written down, and common to all of them, that all the sickness and wretchedness that men endure, all the famines and plagues and such like things, have come from this, that men have tried to rob God of more wisdom than belongs to them. They did not know that this came from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They knew nothing of that. Nevertheless, God did not permit that knowledge to be buried completely, so it remained among the heathens and infidels. They understood that because man tried to usurp to himself more knowledge than was lawful to him, All things are now confounded in this world, and the life of man has become miserable and subject to so many adversities as to make it horrible. 
Now, this by itself is sufficient to make us altogether unexcusable. Yet, God will have us, by us I mean those whom God has chosen to be part of his household, to be more familiarly taught. Thus God speaks, as it were, mouth to mouth. And what the infidels had only by means of imagination, the same does he tell and testify to us. I say, he tells it to us that we might know it familiarly. And he testifies it to us, that we should be assured thereof. This is why he says that he will make all manner of felicity to reign upon us, so that we shall hearken to his voice. By this he shows that though we do not deserve it, he is ready and forward to entreat us as a father does his children, and that he does not delight in vexing us with multitudes of evils, but intends rather to make us feel his goodness in all respects. Let us therefore be advised to walk in the obedience of our God, if we want him to pour upon us the treasures of his grace in such a way that our lives may be blessed. Why the Righteous Suffer Nevertheless, we know that God often afflicts his people for reasons other than their sins, as we see it happen to Job, this being a notable mirror for us. We see the like in the holy patriarchs, who, although they did endeavor and travail to serve God, yet were in as great troubles and griefs as could be. This is even more manifest in the new covenant. For since God has revealed more fully what the perfect happiness of men is, it is required that the faithful be exercised under many adversities in this transitory life. But let us note first of all, that if God does not punish the sins of the faithful, yet he does chastise them in order to preserve them, just as a physician does not always wait until the sickness appears, but if he perceives any likelihood that a man is in danger, he will act to prevent it. God then, in not punishing the sins presently committed by his children, does chastise them in the interest of preserving them. It may be that there is a man who day after day obeys God, and does not offend him in some particular sins. All the same, if he were always in prosperity, he would forget himself. So God acts to cure such diseases by withdrawing his blessings. He will not allow the fat to blind men's eyes, or to hinder our coming to him, lest it should hold us too long in this world. He will not allow us to become so entangled in our delights that we fall completely to sleep in the same. There is a second point, which is that when God forbears to punish us for our sins, it is not because he does not always have just cause to do so if he wished. Pick out the most perfect fault you wish, yet, if God were to deal with him in rigor, he would lay many hard knocks in them. But we may not think so, since we are not as clear-sighted as we should have to be to know the faults that God sees. But we must assure ourselves that God shows his patience and goodness in that he spares men and does not punish them, and by this I mean the most righteous that can be found. We may take as examples of this David, when cruelly persecuted by Saul and by all his various enemies, and Abraham, who was stung and vexed in many ways, and also Isaac and Jacob, and all the prophets who were afflicted by the wicked and by those who despised God even to death and finally the apostles, and all the faithful who were cruelly dealt with. This was not for their sins, 
No, indeed. If God had been pleased to call them to account, he might have punished them a hundred times more severely, and they would have had no cause to accuse him of cruelty. He spared them, and in so doing he did them the honor of suffering for his name. Or rather, he tried their obedience, killed their carnal affections, and drew them near to himself. For example, when God was pleased to make Job a mirror of patience, yet at the same time he made him acquainted with his own frailty. But whatever the case, he intended to make him serve as an example for us all. We perceive then that God has other meanings in afflicting his people than simply punishing their specific sins. Nonetheless, he never ceases to uphold them, even by his own mere grace. We should, however, always come back to this point, that the source of all the miseries that we suffer in this present world is sin. How so? Because if this corruption were not in our nature, condemned by God, and of which we also are convicted, we should enjoy here a blessed life. This entire world would be for us an earthly paradise. For we ought not to think that Adam was cooped up in a little corner for himself alone. Rather, all the whole earth was blessed by God. We might have enjoyed it all until the end of the world. But where is this earthly paradise now? It is nowhere at all, for the earth is cursed. Such was the sentence that God pronounced on Adam and all his offspring. And there we must understand that all the miseries to which we are subject in the present world grow from this root, because we did not continue in the perfection in which Adam was created. We must realize that God reforms us when we have done amiss. He beholds the vices of which he intends to purge us by fit medicines, and does not wait until we have offended him and provokes his vengeance, but goes before us and administers the remedy at the time he deems best. And further, when he afflicts us for some consideration other than our sins, it is a great honor and a special preeminence for us, and we have reason to praise him in that he vouchsafes to mark us and to make his adoption apparent in us by making us to suffer for the testimony of his truth and to receive wrongful persecution at the hands of men, under any pretext or occasion, whatever it may be. Blessing and Adversity Moreover, let us mark that it is not in vain that God promises that those who serve Him shall lead a happy life even in this world. Not that they will be exempt from all adversity, for that is impossible and it is also against the interest of our salvation. But he will so dispose our lives that we shall perceive that he was not feeding us with an empty hope when he said that he will cause all who hearken to his voice to prosper. But by the way, we must remember that the blessings that are contained here are not designed to show what the ultimate felicity of men is, but to give us a taste of the heavenly life to the end that we should seek for the celestial inheritance that is promised us, and there to set our affections. This must be set out more particularly, or else it will be unclear. It is true that there is a difference between us and the fathers who lived under the law, for God was at that time in treating them as little children, and it was fit that it should be so then. After all, they did not yet have our Lord Jesus, who has now set open the gates of heaven to bring us into the life and glory of heaven. 
Indeed, they had as much a part therein as we do, but it was necessary for them to walk in shadows and figures to understand it. Therefore, they had need of some aid, of which we at this time have no need at all. And we must not think our state to be worse than theirs, not being like those who complain these days because God does not dandle them, and because they are not, as it seems to them, as much at ease as the old fathers were. Surely they deceive themselves in making this comparison. For if any one of us should reckon up what he has suffered all the days of his life, and then examine the state of David or Abraham, doubtless he will find himself to be in a better state than were those holy fathers. For they, as the Apostle says in Hebrews 11.13, only saw things afar off, things that are right before our eyes. God promised to be their Savior. He had chosen them to be, as it were, of his household. But meanwhile, where was he who was to be their promised Redeemer? Where was the doctrine that is made so clear to us in the gospel concerning the resurrection? They knew the same afar off, but now it is declared to us in the gospel in such a way that we may indeed say, as our Lord Jesus Christ gives us to understand, that blessed are the ears that hear the things that are told us concerning him, and the eyes that see the things that we see. For the holy kings and prophets long for the same, and could not obtain it. Matthew 13.16 We therefore have a much more excellent estate than they had who lived under the law. This is the difference of which I speak, which needed to be supplied by God because of the imperfection or lack of completion that was in the doctrine concerning the revelation of the heavenly life, which the fathers only knew by outward tokens, although they were dear to God. Now that Jesus Christ has come down to us, and has shown us how we ought to follow him by suffering many afflictions, as it is told us in Matthew 16.24 and Romans 8.29, in bearing poverty and reproach and all such things, and, to be short, that our life must be as it were a kind of death. Since we know all this, and the infinite power of God is uttered in his raising up Jesus Christ from death and in his exalting him to the glory of heaven, should we not take from this good courage? Should not this sweeten all the affliction we can suffer? Do we not have cause to rejoice in the midst of our sorrows? Let us note, then, that if the patriarchs were more blessed by God than we are concerning this present life, we ought not to wonder at it at all, for the reason for it is apparent. But no matter how things go, yet is this saying of St. Paul always verified, that the fear of God holds promise not only for the life to come, but also for this present life, 1 Timothy 4.8. Let us therefore walk in obedience to God, and then we can be assured that he will show himself a father to us, yea, even in the maintenance of our bodies, at least as far as concerns keeping and preserving us in peace, delivering us from all evils, and providing us our necessities. God, I say, will make us feel his blessings in all these things, so that we walk in his fear. The Purpose of Blessing All the same, we must return to this point, that God, in making us to taste his favor here, does not intend that we should be so glutted with it that we forget the everlasting rest to which he invites us. And so, all the benefits of God that belong to this transitory life must serve us for ladders to mount upward, 
and not for cushions to fall asleep on in this world. When God gives a man the wherewithal to live, endowing him with health, and permitting him not to be vexed by his enemies, what else should such a man do but be drawn to the grace of God and endeavor to serve him so much the more, and not misbehave himself in this world? He should go forward, using what God has given him as though not using it at all, 1 Corinthians 7.31, so that nothing stops him from keeping on his way to God. But we do all things clean contrary to this, don't we? And therefore we ought to be more awake. When we hear the promises that are contained here, let us not think that God meant to pamper the people of the Old Covenant in their transitory pleasures, but rather that the same should be a means to draw them up on high, just as He intends for us today. All the good that we receive from Him has this end and intent, that our minds should always be raised up to the heavenly life. Does God give us bread to eat? He shows himself therein to be our Father. All the same, even though we are his children, we do not cease to be as pilgrims in this world, having always one foot lifted up, and having here no rest. Therefore, let us have an eye to the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, and let the bread we eat to nourish us be a means to direct us thither. After the same manner, let it be with all other things. The Perfection of the Promised Blessings Now let us come to what is here contained in the text of Moses, and then in the end we shall understand better what has been said. Moses says here that God will bless his people in the city and in the field. He will bless them in the fruit of their bodies. He will bless them in their cattle. He will bless them in the fruit of their land. He will bless them in their baskets and in their stores and in their granaries. He will bless them in giving them victory over their enemies. We know that the happiness of this present life, that is to say such happiness as may be in this world, is for men to have the wherewithal to maintain themselves in quiet and to be preserved from their enemies. Here God sets both down the one and the other. Touching the one, he says, Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, and the fruit of your land, and the fruit of your cattle. It is certain that the chief blessing we can desire of God is in our own persons, that He provide us such things as are requisite for this transitory life, and that is the reason why He begins with our persons, and then comes to our children, and then descends to our cattle, to the fruit of the ground, and to all provisions. It seems at first glance that God intended to pamper his people, as if he would set them up in a pigsty, and there cram their bellies, to let them sleep at their ease, and in brief, that they should be here as in a paradise. But I have told you already it behooved God to bestow his benefits more largely upon the fathers that lived under the law, because they could not otherwise be drawn to him, seeing that the promises of eternal life were not clear to them. In any case, we have to note herewithal that when God speaks after this manner, he does not mean only to give men hope that they will be blessed in all respects, but also to admonish us that nothing prevents us from enjoying perfect felicity in this world while we wait for the life of heaven except the fact that we are wrapped in vices and corruptions. And in this way God meant to train the faithful, that they should reason thus with themselves. 
Let us serve God, and we shall lack nothing. And if we are vexed, and do not have all our desires, if the earth does not yield such fruitfulness as contents us, or if our cattle do not prosper as we wish, let us understand that this comes to pass because we are wretched creatures and cannot abide the perfection of God's blessings, so that he finds it fitting to withdraw his hand and to give us only a portion of his blessings, because if we should have more, it would glut us, and in the end we should be choked with it. This is the reason, then, why God here so greatly magnifies his blessings. It is done not because men have ever been blessed in all manners of respects without feeling any vexation at all. This, I say, has never happened. So then, why does God promise it? As we have said before, it is to make us understand that whenever a life is not as blessed as we wish, we should consider that God knows us to be unable to receive the fullness of his benefits, and therefore finds it fitting to distribute them to us piecemeal after the manner of feeding sick people or children, who, because they lack discretion, must be governed by others. But we are even less well advised than sick folk or infants, for we would devour the blessings that God sends if he did not hold us in check, for our lusts are miserably corrupted. God bestows his blessing upon us sufficiently, but we, like sick folk, do refuse good meat and fall to foul feeding which cannot but hurt us. Thus we are carried away by our wicked affections and are never able to direct the use of God's benefits or govern them as we should. For we should infect and defile everything if he did not take steps to prevent us. Let us mark, therefore, that God here is warning us to call our sins to remembrance and to bewail them as often as we do not enjoy the fullness of his blessings as is here mentioned. Nevertheless, he would have us to hope that by serving him we shall prosper, and to have enough for our contentment. The Example of David And indeed, we see how all the faithful have lived in this regard. It is certain, as we said, that David was in various kinds of tribulation. No man was afflicted more. But did he in all that time murmur against God? No, it is true that he uttered his griefs and passions, but that was with all meekness. And he did not omit to say that the anger of God lasted but a little while, Psalm 35, and that when he afflicted his people, he merely did it in the turning of his hand, while his goodness lasted a long time and continues lifelong. Lifelong. Well then, let us look at the life of David to see what we find therein. In his infancy, he was brought up as a shepherd's son in the country, and God says that he took him from the flocks as he was among his sheep. When he came to the court of Saul, it is certain that he was advanced to be the son-in-law of the king beyond all expectation and the opinion of the whole world. It might have been better for him to have remained a shepherd in the field than to have been in such travail and misery for the length of time we see he was in it. They sought his death by all means, and his life was not only hanging by a mere thread, it was also subject to reproach. So much so, that they counted him the most wicked villain in the world, a traitor to his prince, a man disloyal to his king. You can see then that David was, as it were, abominable to everybody. And when God finally gave him peace in that matter, then was he vexed with foreign wars, 
insomuch that he had no sooner finished with one people than he was required to turn around and fight another. And to fill up the measure, his own natural son chased him out of his kingdom, intending no less than to cut his throat. And we see what other conspiracies he suffered, such as the conspiracy of Sheba. Yet David always confessed without pretense that all the chastisements, miseries, and afflictions that God sent him were nothing to him, and that they lasted but the turning of a hand, or for a minute of an hour, whereas his blessings endure forever. How so? Because David did not have the kind of unthankful heart that we have. We embrace God's gracious dealings and make no account of them, but of every little harm we make a good mountain. When God chastises us, we shrink down our shoulders, making great complaints and outcries. But let us learn better to esteem God's goodness toward us in such a way that we are not found ungrateful for His grace. This is the reason I say why we do not conceive the value of the blessings that are contained here in this passage. Why? Because if God sends us any vexation, we shut our hearts against Him. And though we may not murmur in speech, yet we do not fail to have some bitterness lurking in our hearts. There only needs to come one affliction into our life, and the grace of God is quite removed from our taste. And when He has done us all the good that can be devised, yet does it ever run in our remembrance? Rather, what we remember is, I have sustained such and such a harm, and our minds are never off of it. Thus are God's benefits unsavory to us, so that we pass them over or let them slip. When things happen contrary to us, therefore, and our Lord afflicts us, let us receive the comforts that He gives us to moderate our affliction, and then we shall continue to walk in our way. And although we are called to endure many things, and even though by reason of our frailty and feebleness we are not able to overcome all temptations at the first blow, yet notwithstanding, through the grace of God we may get the upper hand. And when we are thus oppressed with our miseries, then we shall esteem God's grace in such a way that even in the midst of darkness we shall perceive what light God gives to us, so that we shall always feel Him to be our Father. For there is no doubt but that He will bless us sufficiently, to the extent that it is fitting for our salvation. Thus you see what we have to do and to practice, if we want rightly to understand what God has said, that He shall bless His people if they hearken to His voice. God, the Giver of all blessing. Moreover, we are hereby warned not to seek anything we desire except from the hand of God. This is a very profitable admonition. For we see how men err when they desire to be at their ease. It is the natural inclination of all men to covet to be this and that. And what course do they hold in the pursuit of it? There can be no doubt about it. They turn their backs on God and kick against Him. He that intends to become rich will use robbery and cruelty, deceit and wicked practices. He that desires to attain to credit and authority will practice treason, indirect wiles, and other slights of hand. In brief, ambition rules such a man altogether. Finally, he that would give vent to any other of his lusts cannot but provoke the anger of God. See at what point we are, and in this way, our faithlessness uncovers itself in every way, 
as I have mentioned here before. Therefore, we have need to be mindful of this lesson, which is that if we wish to prosper, even in this present life, there is no other means for it than to put ourselves under the guidance of God, who has all good in his power to bestow on whomever he pleases. We may also hope that he will not be niggardly in distributing his gracious gifts unto us, at least if we hearken to his voice. Whereas I have been saying, since we are his children, can we think that he takes pleasure in vexing us? Moreover, it cost him nothing, no matter how liberal he is toward us. Yet, he is not afraid of having less for himself as a result, or that he will feel any lack, for he is a fountain that can never be drawn dry. Let us therefore be persuaded that our lives will always be accursed unless we return to this point whereto Moses leads us, namely, to hearken to the voice of our God, to be thereby moved and continually confirmed in the fact that he cares for our salvation, but also for the maintenance of our state in this earthly life, to make us taste at present of his love and goodness in such a way as may content and suffice us, waiting till we have our fill thereof, and behold face to face that which we are now constrained to look upon as it were through a glass and in the dark. 1 Corinthians 13.12 That is one more thing we ought to remember from this text, where it is said that we will be blessed if we hearken to the voice of the Lord our God. Specific Blessings of God This is to be applied to all parts of our lives. For example, when a man wishes to prosper in his own person, that is, he desires to employ himself in the service of God and to obtain some grace so that he may not be unprofitable in this life, but that God may be honored by him, let him think thus to himself, Lord, I am yours. Dispose of me as you will. Here I am, ready to obey you. This is the place at which we must begin if we desire God to guide us and create in us the disposition to serve Him, so that His blessings may appear and lighten upon us and upon our persons. So it is concerning every man's household. When a man desires to live in peace and concord with his wife, or to have children in whom to rejoice, let him understand that all this is in the hand of God, and that it does not lie in our power or skill to order our households after our heart's desires. For they who think they can achieve it by their own power are very much deceiving themselves and commit sacrilege in robbing God of the honor that he reserves to himself. It is said that the fruit of the womb is a special gift of God, Psalm 127.3, and so is everything else that pertains to the household. Accordingly, it is said that it is vain for a man to build unless God also builds with him, Psalm 127.1. Those, therefore, who wish to possess a quiet state for themselves and their children, let them turn to God and commit themselves wholly to him and to his guidance knowing that there is no other means to attain the same than by his blessing. The same thing is true concerning cattle, food, and all other things, for we see here in this text that nothing is forgotten. And God meant to make us to perceive his infinite goodness, in that he declares that he will deal with our smallest affairs, which one of our own equals would be loath to meddle with. 
If we have a friend, we should be very loath indeed, and ashamed to use his help unless it were in a matter of great importance. But we see here that God goes into our sheepfolds, and into the stalls of our cattle and oxen, and he goes into our fields, and he cares for all other things as well. Since we see him abase himself thus far, shouldn't we be ravished to honor him and to magnify his bounty? Let us conclude, then, that when God says that he shall bless us in the fruit of the earth, and that he shall bless us in the fruit of our cattle, it is a most certain argument that he will not forget the principal thing. These things are lowly and of little count, and many times men despise them. And yet we see that God takes care of them notwithstanding. Since this is so, will he forget our souls, which he has created after his own image, which also he has so dearly redeemed with the sacred blood of his Son? Surely not. First of all, therefore, let us acknowledge God's favor toward us in abasing himself so far as to direct and govern everything that belongs to our lives and sustenance. And from there, let us rise up higher and understand that he will not fail us in the things that surpass this present life, but rather that in the chief things that belong to our life, Indeed, even in this world, God will stretch forth his hand to furnish us always with all things that are needful. Protection from Enemies Then there is the second point, which is that we will be upheld against our enemies in verse 7. We have said that the first point is that God provides for us so that we lack nothing that is requisite for the passing of our life in this world. But if our granaries were fuller than ever, and our cellars thoroughly supplied, and our purses stuffed tight so that we want nothing, yet, if our enemies are still able to scratch our eyes out, and we are like a people set for the spoil, so that we are daily afflicted and have no defense, what will our great abundance avail us? Therefore, it was God's will in his brief compass to show here, that his blessings extend themselves so far and wide in all cases and in all respects that nothing should be missing from such as do him honor and service. Let us mark that God has not exempted us completely from our enemies, nor did he exempt the people of olden time. Why? Because it is impossible for us to live in this world without some vexation at the hands of other men. It is true that, as much as in us lies, we ought to procure peace for our part. But since the devil is prince of this world, he will not leave God's children in rest, and he has supporters enough to serve his designs. For all the despisers of God, all the wicked and all the hypocrites that are in this world, the number of whom is infinite in manner, are Satan's darts, swords, and arrows. Seeing then that we must dwell among those who despise God, and among the wicked, let us reckon that we shall be troubled and have enemies. Let us endeavor to appease them as much as we can, and let us give them no occasion of hatred. But in the meantime, let us not be unprovided, however things go. Thus much concerning that one point. For God has not said, I will utterly root out your enemies, so that you shall have the world by yourselves, wherein to lead a happy and quiet life, and to have all the felicity that can be wished. He has not said that, but he says, Although you are compassed round about with your enemies, yet I will not permit them to have the upper hand over you. Now he says further, 
that if our enemies come forth by one way, they will flee seven ways. By this he gives us to understand that our enemies may well conspire by great numbers, so that it may be likely that we should be swallowed up by them, but yet they shall be filled with fear. This will be shown more largely at another text, but here we have to mark that the sustaining and maintaining of our lives are in the hands of God, and that our rest and quietness depend also on Him. And although men do continually devise ways to hurt and annoy us, yet God is ever strong enough to disappoint them when He has once received us into His protection and to hinder them so that they will be able to attempt nothing against us but will be overthrown. That is what we need to remember. Now, when God permits us to have enemies, He is calling us thereby to Himself, and we ought to be the more provoked to call upon Him when we see ourselves driven thereto by necessity. For if this world should smile on us and rejoice at us on all sides, it would seem to us that we have no more need of God's protection. But when we are beset with perils and dangers, and see that men lie in wait for us, seeking nothing else but to come in to vex us, it causes us to resort to God, to commit ourselves to His care, praying Him to be our shield and fortress and our defender. Let us thereby mark that God, in permitting us to have enemies, does thereby draw us to Himself, that we should pray Him always to succor and defend us. But to conclude, we must remember that God is mighty enough to maintain us. How so? Well, if our enemies come upon us with great fierceness, it would be enough to daunt us and to put us out of courage. But however we fare, even if He allows them to rise up against us and to be as ferocious as wild beasts, yet they shall not know what to do but to be astounded. And although they have tremendous advantage at the beginning, and be full of craft and wiles, yet God will blind their eyes so that they will cast themselves willfully into the snare and there be taken. Again, even when they are armed with malice and boldness to set upon us, God will in the end confound them. No man can tell how. He will destroy all their devices and attempts, and when they band themselves against us and have great multitudes on their sides, yet will God scatter them just as when we see a cloud threatening rain, and it seems that all should be drowned, God scatters it, and the tempest is gone. Even so will he deal with our enemies. Thus you see in effect what we have to remember concerning this text, where it is said that we shall be defended against all such as set themselves against us, and that our God will make them flee before our faces if we do him the honor to acknowledge him to be the Lord of hosts, and that his power is infinite and that therefore the whole world can never prevail against him in the least. Conclusion Finally, what have we now to do but submit ourselves to the obedience of God? Also, let us understand that all those who do not believe, and all those who despise God's majesty, although for a time their lives may seem happy, yet they are appointed of perdition and all their goods shall become a curse to them, so that they will be in a forlorn condition. Just as Psalm 69.22 says, their very tables will be turned into snares, and artifices wherewith to trap them, and all the benefits of God will become deadly poison to them. Here is what we must keep in mind. 
Moreover, as often as we are afflicted, let us humble ourselves and acknowledge our sins and bewail them before God. And in the meantime, let us not omit to qualify our griefs, knowing that amidst the afflictions he sends us, there always appears a certain testimony of his goodness, and that it is necessary that he should so hold us in awe. Yet notwithstanding, we must not be cast down or discouraged when we are vexed and troubled, though we are encircled with never so many miseries. And why? Because God never fails for all that to show himself a father towards us. That is the thing whereon we must altogether rest, so that all the afflictions of this world may quicken us up to aspire to the heavenly heritage. And when we have bewailed our sins, let us not doubt but that God of his mercy will bless us, even in Jesus Christ, the fountain of all goodness and blessedness, by whom all curses are quite taken away. To prove that it is so, what may be the chief curse that is fallen upon mankind, if not death? And yet we see that the same has become an entrance into life. And how? In that the person of Jesus Christ is now made blessed. For this reason, let us learn to rejoice, since we see that God has so provided for our salvation that, although he makes us to feel our sins, and would have us touched with some sorrow, thereby to bring us to repentance, yet he never ceases amidst all these to show himself a father evermore, and by all means to advance our salvation. Prayer Now let us humble ourselves before the majesty of our good God, with acknowledgments of our sins, praying him to touch us to the quick more and more, that we may hate them, and that, acknowledging the evil that is in us, we may seek his mercy, not only to forgive us the sins that we have already committed, but also to mortify us, and, by the power of his Spirit, to give us grace so to forsake ourselves, that we may seek his righteousness, and more and more profit therein, until it be perfect in us, at such time as he will have taken us out of this world. And let us all say, Almighty God, Heavenly Father, etc.